Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, how's it going? It's going well, Yoel. How are you? I'm good. It's very hot and sweaty in my closet today, though. It's one of those humid Montreal summer days, and you especially feel it in my closet. I'm having a lot of trouble sympathizing with you right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, well, I guess that's true. I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't complain to the person in Alabama. How is it there? Um, it's pretty hot and hot around here. And it's also like, um, characteristic Alabama summer where it will be bright and intensely sunny. And then all of a sudden it will start pouring rain. Um, and then it will be bright and sunny again, like 15 minutes later. Um, so this weekend, um, I was driving from Birmingham to Tuscaloosa, uh, with my, with my partner, Megan and her grandmother. And this is like her grandmother's first time to Alabama. And so we're like, you know, uh, just like making the trip from Birmingham to Tuscaloosa. And then just like all of a sudden the sky opens up and just starts to pour. Um, and you know how, like, did you learn when you were a kid that the time between like when you see the lightning and when you hear the thunder tells you something about how far away the lightning is? I learned that rule as a kid. Yep. Yeah, I think I think the lightning was real close. <laughs> um, so we ended up like pulling over to the side of the road. But um, but by the time we did that, it felt like we were just going to like be sitting in the storm longer. So then we just made a run for it. Um, and yeah, anyways, uh, long story short, we survived. Um, Megan's grandmother might be slightly traumatized. Um, but yeah, it's hot and rainy is the short story. Well, I'm I'm glad that everybody survived. I would have been very sad if <laughs> Megan's grandmother hadn't made it. That's that's so nice of you, you all. <laughs> yeah, You're such a I, nice guy. I root for the elderly. It's one of my many fine personal qualities. Um, listen, let's talk about drinks. What are you having today? Um, so I got this drink here, and I'll try to I'll try to give you the same experience that I had when I bought it. So this is what I saw. Okay, um, yeah. S L U. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. It's, so it's that's what I was... slut beer. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what I was hoping for, but it's actually oh, slush beer. Boo. Um that's a real missed opportunity in my opinion. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh but I got it anyways, and it's from um Prairie Artisan Ales, which I think um I maybe had a beer of theirs before. Um I think it's Oklahoma, but I can't remember now and I don't see the answer. Yeah, if I remember correctly, that's actually a repeat brewery for you. Do you uh, do you want to share a little bit about the beer's characteristics? Yes, it is a sour ale with strawberry, raspberry, lemon, and lime. Damn, that sounds good. It's sort of like a slushy. Do you think that's why they called it that? I guess so. Yeah. Okay. Either that or I'm going to open this beer and it's literally going to be a slushy, which it's would be pretty slush. cool. Right. Well, in that case, we'll pause it. You could go get a spoon. Um, so I have uh, Vox Populi, which is also a French brewery, I think, but mercifully has an English name, so it's pronounceable. Uh, milkshake IPA, a lactose and vanilla India pale ale. And I think I've had it before and liked it. Um, possibly I'm misremembering it and it's going to be real fucking gross. So mm. we're, we're going to find out right now. Okay. I have um, a question to ask you about the mixing of lactose and beer. Um, so what do you think of the idea um, of having an ice cream float in a beer? Ooh. 
So before I got into the lactose beers, I would have said, that's the grossest thing in the world. But now that I've had them and tend to enjoy them, I'm like, that could be really good. Like, imagine it's like a thick stout, like a Guinness or something, and then it just has some ice cream floating in it. I think it's a genius idea. And I made one and I thought it was everything that I imagined and more, but not everybody agreed with me that it was delicious. Wait, you actually, this isn't just hypothetical. You made this beverage? Yes. Wow. Okay. Maybe as like bonus content for our listeners, you can like post your technique or recipe or whatever, and they can try it out. I love the idea of posting my beer float recipe on our website. It's going to be huge. All right, listeners, look for that. I think we have a blog section. We've literally never used it, um, but this is the perfect thing to inaugurate it with, in my opinion. (laughs) All right. Shall we crack them open? Let's do it. Oh, God, I got beer all over myself. (laughs) Fuck, it never fails. I just did laundry, and that's, like, totally when I spill things on myself. Okay, but the all-important, how does it taste? Mm. Okay, that's the one I remember. It's really good. How's yours? Delicious. Very good. Not, it's it's liquid. It's not a slushy consistency. I'm so relieved to hear that. (laughs) Okay, so, um, Alexa, I hear that you've been busy this summer. Is this correct? That's, that's inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> really? You keep telling me you're busy. <laughs> Actually, I would have said that in the month of June. That's true. I felt busy during the month of June. Um, and right now I feel not busy at all. I see. I see. You are teaching in the month of June? Yeah. I taught two classes, which for me is a, feels feels like a lot um, in the summer to teach two classes. Yeah, that's that's quite a bit, particularly for June. And then I imagine you had your other ongoing professional obligations, uh, service work, students, papers you're working on, perhaps. It just never ends. How's it, have you been busy this summer, you will? Uh, well, you know, I never know how to answer that question because it, yes, I guess. But then I like pieced out to the U.S. for a month. But then I was working while I was there. So it's a, I, I never know. Like, yeah, I feel busy. I guess I can answer it from a subjective standpoint. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm busy. But maybe I feel like I'm busy because I'm actually not working that much and I feel guilty that I'm not working that much. But then the guilt like just consumes so much mental energy that I feel constantly taxed while producing <laughs> nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> that sounds very complicated and very stressful. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. So... uh One thing that I hear uh, a lot about these days for busy faculty folks like us is the concept of self-care. And and I kind of feel like I understood what that was. And and now we decided to do an episode about it. And and now I kind of feel like I don't anymore. I feel like I'm now very confused about what self-care is. So maybe, do you want to just give a little bit of a background, like a primer on this concept? Like, where's it come from? What is it? Like, how do you do it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I was I was interested in doing an episode on self-care because, I mean, I feel like it's sort of like uh, connected to these other topics that we often talk about, things like work-life balance. Um, and, uh, and I have this like negative reaction to the term self-care, but also when I look at like articles that advise people on the importance of self-care or how to exercise self-care. It all seems very sensible and it's like includes things that I do. Um, And I like the sort of message uh, that we like that competes against this message that we should be 
yeah, showing off how busy we are or um, that we can sort of like only prove our worth as academics or really any sort of professional by proving like how many hours a day or a week we work or something like that. So like I feel like uh, self-care is a response to that, but there's also been this sort of like I've I've had this sort of negative reaction to to some instances where people use the idea of self-care, I guess. I guess feeling like um, people use it to sort of get out of things or maybe it's like certain people who use it um, and probably they'll like, uh, yeah, probably the delineator between the people who use it and I feel supportive of and the people who use it and I have a negative reaction is like, I think that, you know, some people are... Um, lazier than others or like they they don't have it that rough and so they don't they shouldn't need self-care or something like that um i also didn't know anything about the history of the term um self-care or these kinds of discussions and i learned a little bit about it preparing for the episode um so i learned and and this was somewhat validating actually so i learned that the the concept uh i th i think that it's sort of ridiculous to attribute the concept of self-care to any one individual but some people attribute the, the sort of terminology to Audre Lorde, who is a black lesbian feminist scholar. Um, and the quote that's often associated with this terminology is, uh, so she said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, um, and that is an act of political warfare. Um, and so, I mean, this sounds like an awesome notion of self-care uh, employed by someone who um, is obviously part of a number of marginalized groups um, and is is sort of advocating for the importance of self-care as a way for her to sort of um, carry on as an activist, um, probably against a lot of obstacles. Um, and so I guess my it, it validated my my feeling that like sometimes people use self-care in a really fluffy way. Um, but I I don't know. Yeah. So what what are your thoughts about self-care, Yoa? Well, you know, like you, I have this reaction that it sort of puts my hackles up. Do you know what hackles are? I actually don't, but they're up. I think they're related to, I think they're a part of a dog. <laughs> but I'm not sure if they're like a muscle or like the hair on a dog's back or... <laughs> is it like, like where the dog is pissed and it's like hair is kind of standing up? That's what I... I'm, I'm feeling very uncertain about this and now sort of upset that I committed to that definition on, the, I see. <laughs> on this podcast. I but see. yeah. Right. Uh, if that's a wrong, you'll be, you'll be mocked publicly. Right. So it's, it's, I get this feeling of my back hair is standing up when I hear this <laughs> term. It's just like it bothers me. And, and like you, I'm like, well, I mean, I think it's reasonable that people should be able to like have downtime, take breaks and hang out with their families and all of this stuff. But it just somehow like the use of it, just that term, or maybe it's the users of the term, it just feels like super, I don't know, like narcissistic and self-indulgent somehow. And I am having trouble like justifying that reaction or putting my finger on it. But it's like, you know, the kind of person, like you said, who I feel like would use this term self-care is not somebody who's, I, I don't know, working what I would think was like an exhausting and terrible job, right? It's not like uh, the shift waitress is like, I'm going to have a self-care day in my imagination. Or the e ER doctor is like, oh, time for some self-care. <laughs> is it people who are like, I have a fucking cushy job to start with it? Or like, I need to go to spa for a week. Is that, that's totally unfair, I'm sure. I, it must be unfair. But I, it does like raise a question for me about um, like who is really able to 
exercise self-care, I guess. So um, I guess like one reason that that sometimes I feel skeptical of this like notion that we should all be exercising self-care is that you you kind of have to have a certain amount of flexibility to begin with to be able to sort of exercise self-care, at least in some of the ways that it's normally um, it's normally sort of advocated for. So like not everybody has the chance to like take a day off whenever they want to. Um, I mean, I think probably the reason that both you and I um, maybe have some of these negative reactions is that we're often talking to academics who are an example of this group that does have a lot of flexibility and probably can exert a lot of self-care. Um, and then there's this sort of like contentious question about how hard your job is as an academic. Um, and so the big caveat for me here is like, I have the like easiest kind of academic job that you can have, right? Like I have tenure, I don't have children, I, you know, have a lot of security and things like that. Um, so, so that's my like sort of confession is that I roll my eyes at academics using self-care, but I have the cushiest academic situation. I mean, there are some people who have cushier situations, but it's pretty good. Yeah. If we're like ranking people by cushy situation, you're like at least in the top quartile. You're probably in the top decile, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There's a small handful of people who might, one might say that they have cushier situations, but really like you or I, for that matter, have very, very little to complain about. And I I do think that's like really good to keep in mind because like Mickey and I talked about um, kind of the pros and cons of academia um, in a past episode. And we got some really great email from listeners who were like, yeah, that's great for you. Let me tell you what a grind my academic job is. And yeah, it sucks. So like maybe that that is this exactly what you said is that I kind of have this feeling of like, we've won the, won the lottery. And so then complaining about overwork or being like, Oh, I need to really, really like take some time for myself because I'm just like exhausted by my like job that most people would fucking kill to have just feels super indulgent, but maybe that's wrong too. Right? Like just because it's a good job doesn't mean that it isn't sometimes stressful or that you shouldn't sometimes like take some time to, I don't know, not work and do something else. So I feel like maybe we should talk about just like the mechanics of like, what actually is it? Like what falls under that umbrella? Is it, and why does it need a a special term? Why can't you be just like, I'm taking a personal day, right? Like, why is it, do you need that extra like layer of like, I'm going to have a special word for it and these extra meanings that go along with that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was like looking through, you know, some of the things that people list as as activities that they engage in um, as self-care. And there's like, you know, people who spend some time with their families, um, which like I'm I'm pro spending time with your family. That sounds like a great way to spend your time, <laughs> probably better than many work related things. Um, and then there's stuff like, you know, like exercise, doing like yoga, meditating, things that are sort of like uh, maybe like physical or, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, giving deliberately sort of giving yourself mental space. Um, and then I also saw some people mention things like sort of putting in this category um, like celebrations of things, um, which is something that I wanted to talk about a little bit because I recently um, – 
one of my grad students and I recently got a paper rejected. And I think I'm going to sort of introduce um, a practice of celebrating paper rejections. And I, I think that, the, I mean, one approach is to just celebrate paper submissions. But if there's something nice about like uh, getting to like go for a beer or something, even if something gets rejected. And, you know, I guess the idea is that a lot often things get rejected and you still tried your hardest and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so I liked that idea as something to do um, for self-care. But yeah, so, so what makes all of these things self-care? Um, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what the common thread is. I guess it's like things that are, feel like, it's like things that you do in your spare time that aren't watching Netflix. That's, that's what I think it is. Yeah, right. So like I was struck by as you were giving this list of like these things all sound suspiciously virtuous. <laughs> so if I'm like my self-care regimen is I order donuts and pizza and I lie on the couch and watch Netflix, does that count? If I'm like... I feel really stressed. I'm going to stay home and watch porn today. <laughs> Does that, I mean, right? Can't self-care just be anything that you want to do instead of work and you decide to like take some time that could have been work time and do that thing? Or does it have to have some sort of like beneficial or self-improving aspect to it? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I... I actually like I do think that sometimes people use self-care to mean like I'm going to stay home and watch Netflix all day and and eat donuts. Um, and yeah, so I mean, this sort of like raises a question of whether self-care is just sort of like, yeah, anything that you f would prefer to do um, rather than work, which is, I guess, supposed to be caring for yourself in that you are giving yourself a break. Um and, but then I, I also feel like it's sometimes used in a slightly different way to refer to um, activities that are sort of like self-development-y in some way, you know, like like exercise or like learning something new or, um, yeah. Yeah. So another conceptual question is, is it only possible to do self-care if you're the sort of person who gets to decide how much they work, like if you're in that kind of a job, because let me see if I can like put this right. There's, there's many jobs for which it's just not an option to just take a, I mean, I guess in theory you could take a sick day, but, but to me, self-care has this kind of flavor of, you know, I could decide to be working and it's sort of up to me how much to decide to work. And I'm going to decide not to work and to do this other thing instead. But somehow, like, I need a, I need a term or a justification or a framework for that. It can't just be like, you know, if it's just your day off and you have a regular job, then that's not really self-care, right? It's just like, oh, you have a day off and you do what you want on your day off. It kind of has to be that you have a choice and you're like, I'm choosing not to do this work thing. I'm choosing to do this thing that I enjoy rather than work, right? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, maybe to like uh, give the concept of self-care some credit or something, maybe there's like a version of it that's like basically like making decisions that aren't putting putting like work or professional success above everything else. Um, so I guess there's, there could be a version of self-care that is not like 
oh, I'm taking like a a porn day, but instead, like, uh, I'm going to say no to this like opportunity at work that theoretically would be good for me professionally, but it sounds like a lot of stress and a lot of work or um, I'm going to delegate something to somebody else or, you know, not take on some additional responsibility. Um, uh, yeah, I can imagine how there's, there are possibly like elements of self-care that even in a job where you don't have the freedom to sort of like take time off whenever you want or do things like that, there's, there's still ways that you can, um, engage in self-care, which I think maybe like also starts to connect more to this like Audre Lorde version of self-care, which is sort of like, yeah, like self, self-preservation. Um, and that actually connects to another notion that I, I wanted to ask your opinion on you also. Like sometimes I hear people say like, uh, you know, I need to put myself first before I can like deal with other people. So it's like important, like, uh, you got to look out for number one, and then it's after that that you can like sort of worry about other people's needs. Um, and I see that sort of sentiment like expressed in what Audre Lorde says, like something like, okay, I need to focus on um, myself to, to some extent before I can like engage in this other work. And this is important. Um, and I've also like I've always had sort of conflicting feelings about this, like um, look out for number one uh, sentiment too. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Do you look out for number one, you all? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, without fail. Um, well, I, I mean, I know I have trouble saying no to things, um, particularly when colleagues ask me to do stuff. I have trouble telling them that I can't do it. Uh, so I've definitely gotten myself into situations where I'm like, why did I agree to do this thing? And it's now time to do the thing. And I really don't want to do it. And I just want to go back and kick my past self. So I I can see the uh, the merit in that um, just from the perspective of like improving my own like hedonic state. I'm a little reluctant with a philosophy of life that encourages people to be more selfish. <laughs> like, I feel like that's sort of our default, right? And and maybe that's part of my reactivity to this whole term or idea or something that I feel that it's wrapped up with encouraging people to be maximally selfish. And that seems bad. Like, we should be promoting the opposite, I think. So we should introduce the concept of other care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Put other people first. I mean, like, you don't, I, it's just, you know, nothing applies to everybody. And I'm sure there are, really are any number of people who pathologically put other people first. But I think if you're like, which problem do people as a whole typically have? They put themselves <laughs> first too much or other people first too much? I would say is the former, not the latter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean that's like that's the that's the reaction that I have to the idea of looking out for number 1 is that like yeah, I mean I think that I think that most of us most of us do that pretty instinctively or something like that. Um and it also seems like even if we don't do that instinctively, like even if we're pretty good at prioritizing other people, it seems 
it seems nice to do that. Like as a, as an approach to life, that seems like a nice approach. Um, obviously like I see where that idea is coming from. Right. I see the, like, um, there's a version of that where you go too far and you're always like accommodating other people and you get like burnt out or something like that and you can't do it anymore. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe that's happening like left and right. Um, I'm not sure. I guess the elephant in the room here is the gendered aspect to all of this, where if you're going to like pick the gender of the person who said, I really just need to make some self-care time right now, you know, I think you would, uh, you would want to bet on that's a woman. And maybe that's also where this put yourself first advice comes in, where stereotypically, at least it's women who have trouble saying no, women who are always doing kind of thankless service work for other people et cetera, et cetera. Like, do you feel that this is a gendered term? Uh, so yeah, certainly if like you told me a colleague of mine said that they needed to take a self-care day, I would probably make assumptions. Um, and yeah, I, I do see it as a gendered uh, concept. And I mean, like with so many of these, these concepts that get like, I guess... I don't know, like tied up into political discussions and things like that, it feels like a reaction, right? So um, like women in academia using the term self-care feels like a reaction to feeling um, like all of the service work has been dumped on them with little recognition, right? Um, and so like as a consequence, self-care is like a a reaction to that. Um, and, and I think you do see that sort of like reaction come up in the varieties of self-care that are sort of like commonly advocated for. So like saying no to things and, um, yeah, and being willing to sort of like take time for family and things like that. These feel like, yeah, maybe things that have like historically, not been easy for women to prioritize and still be professionally successful. Yeah. Although if you're like more family time, I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of stereotypically feminine, right? So it's, it's this weird, I don't know. Uh, I don't exactly want to call it paradoxical, but it's like, you know, empower yourself at work by doing stereotypically feminine things like hanging out with your family and perhaps going to the spa. I'm obviously like overstating that to be ridiculous, but yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, these things get so complicated when, um, when you're trying to, I guess, advocate for more choice and some of that, some of the choices feel like stereotypical and, um, and what, what was the most available option when choices weren't available, I guess. It should be like, you know, you have unlimited self-care time, but only to do totally gender unnormative things. Like if you're a woman, you like have to go to a monster truck rally. <laughs> if you're a dude, I don't know. You have to go to the spa a lot. Actually, I, that, I've, I've been to a spa. It was really nice. Like I enjoyed it. Like I feel like dudes are missing out if they're not going to spas. A hundred percent. Speaking of which, okay. So if somebody told you you have 24 hours and you must spend it on self-care, what would you do? Oh, that's uh, that. That's great. I was I was about to make it personal in the same way. 
Um, what sort of drugs do I have access to in this hypothetical world? All of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so start there. Absolutely. Um, I've actually, this is only the thinnest possible connection, but uh, I just, just because I want to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. I've been getting into the idea of I want to start doing mushrooms again. I used to like really like doing mushrooms and I didn't for a long time. And it was partly because it was like, it just like takes an entire day. You know, and it's sort of like, eh, I have work to do. And on the weekends, I have other shit to do. And like, I think it's the summer. It's my sabbatical year. I'm just going to fucking do mushrooms. Who's going to tell me to stop? <laughs> you? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm going to make that my priority. Just show up at your house and tell you to stop doing mushrooms. <laughs> stop doing mushrooms. Stop it. <laughs> so what about you? What would your What would your self-care 24 hours look like? Oh, I should have thought about the answers to this question before we recorded an episode of on self-care. Um, it does seem like an obvious question that you might be asked. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, I should know the answer because I think there are days where I just like um, pretty much do exactly what I want. Um, and I guess that is is some of that is self-care. Um, I would like go out to eat um, and I would drink wine and I might like not care about what time of the day I was drinking wine at. Um, I, one thing that came to mind because since working from home, I have like more flexibility in terms of like taking breaks and stuff like that is that like sometimes, um, in between like meetings or something like that, I'll play the piano, which like feels to me like very um it's like very trans it, it transports me to like a different sort of headspace um and it also feels like a little bit like i'm not wasting time i have i have some guilt with things that feel like wasting time like um and and i think that this is probably something that somebody who was like a big advocate for self-care would say like, this is like the pathology of capitalism. That's like stamped itself on your mind. You know, you can't like binge watch a Netflix show and not feel guilty about it, but I can't do that. I, I do feel guilty if I like watch four episodes of a TV show. Yeah. Interesting. So I love the piano example because it's so like, it just checks all the boxes of also being mm -hmm. sort of like improving and almost mildly a boast, like, oh, yeah, I'll just take some time to like yeah, right. really express myself <laughs> musically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So, like, what else? Like, let's like talk about like concretely, like, what are some other like self care things that, that you do? I mean, I do resonate a lot with the like, the exercise stuff. Like, to me, that makes like, a pretty big difference in my general well being. Um, and, yeah, I try to like prioritize that and I feel crappy if I, if I don't. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, yeah, I like this idea of, of making time to like sort of celebrate things. Um, I do think that like in academia, we experience, there's a lot of things take a lot of time. Um, and there's quite a bit of rejection, I think. And so to sort of like, um, break that up with, like celebrations that happen, you know, regardless of like what reviewer two thinks or something is, I think, a pretty nice idea. 
Yeah. So, so you talked about wanting to institute a celebration for ejected papers uh-huh. for your lab. So have you actually started doing this yet or is this just a plan? We did this once. We've done it. We've done it for the one paper that got rejected. Yeah. And, and you feel like it, it worked? Yeah. I think it was nice. Yeah. Um, I think it was a way to sort of like, so first of all, I mean, like, yeah, I, I enjoy hanging out with my grad students and we spend a lot of time working together. Um, but it's also like nice to spend social time together. Um, but then I also think it's like a way to remind ourselves that there's like, you know, things that we have control over, you know, you can write the, a paper that you're proud of and you can submit it. And that doesn't guarantee that other people will think it's as good as you do or whatever. And so it's a good way to remind ourselves that like, um, yeah, there are things that you have control over and things that you don't. And you should sort of recognize when you've done the things that you have control over that you're you're trying to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. I love that idea. I think I may be going to steal it from you. So this, I, I do feel like we're just covering a lot of really different things, right? And so it's, it's it's hard to evaluate the whole concept for me because it like encompasses so much stuff. Like it's it could be partly like changing how you think such that you're giving yourself credit for like doing the work even if the paper gets rejected. Uh, it could be put aside time to spend with your friends and family or doing things that you enjoy. Or it could be shaft your colleagues with a bunch of extra work because you don't feel like being on that committee. Um, and I feel like varying ways about each of those. So I feel like it's almost this concept is expanded to this big nebulous thing that I don't even know what to say about. Yeah. Are we just sort of like grouping together instances where we do what we want? Yeah, I think that might be it. I So to me, it, it, a reaction that I like, I'm having trouble like really like articulating well, but something that seems sort of perverse about all of this is like a lot of this stuff that people put under self-care, like doing things you enjoy or spending time with your family, that should just be living your life, right? And to put it in this little box and be like, I have to give it a special label and I have to make sure that I make some time in order to like live my life just seems like sad, sort of. I mean, like having seen how like Dutch academics work like, they'll just take off from, like, a month and a half during the summer. They'll go home and, like, not check their email and just hang out with their families. And that's just normal. And it just seems like this is, in in making it aspirational to, like, actually have a life, that, like, that's sort of the saddest message I could imagine. Right. And I made sort of, like, a, a quip about, you know, the capitalism being stamped on our brains but i do think that that the like sort of self-care phenomenon is in some ways a reaction to like a pretty american like capitalist notion of like um what's a valuable way to spend your time um and it's a reaction i guess against the idea that the only valuable ways that we spend time are ways that are like sort of professionally recognized or monetized or something like that um and that in order to sort of like react to that, we need to create this new category that is, I mean, maybe that's another way to categorize all of the sort of self-care um, examples that we've talked about is like they don't advance 
us professionally and they don't make us money. Right. Right. That's a useful categorization. Yeah. You know, the fucked up thing about all of this is like for me and and I would guess for you too, because we both have tenure, it's mostly self-imposed. Like I could fuck off and stop doing work tomorrow. I mean, I obviously need to teach my classes still, but like I could just stop doing most other work. And like the only consequence would be my colleagues would be like, oh, he's, he's kind of lazy. Is that what keeps you doing your work, Yoel? The fear that your colleagues will call you lazy? Not exactly that, but it's this sort of internalized voice of like, I feel bad if I don't, if I feel like I'm not working, right? Like if I have a day where I feel that I've been lazy or like goofed off too much, I feel bad about myself. I feel uncomfortable. I feel tense. It's an unpleasant feeling. And like part of the reason that I work is like, I feel like it's satisfying to do it. But the flip side is it's uncomfortable and uh, yeah, like guilt inducing to not do it. Can you relate to that at all? Definitely. And like, I think about this often and try tr trying to sort of like parse the part of that motivation that's valuable from the part that m is just sort of like a reflex or is just really like sort of this idea that, um, that our time isn't valuably spent unless it's sort of like productive in a clear way. Um, like, in the first category of like feeling that motivation or, or that guilt and feeling that like, that's a good thing. I mean, I feel a lot of responsibility to, um, the, the people who I work with and I'm including like undergraduate students and graduate students in that group. So like, you know, I feel, I feel guilty if I don't do a good job as a teacher or a mentor or a collaborator. And I think that that's good. You know, and I do think that sometimes in sort of like the most pathological form, uh, self-care can be sort of like a way to excuse oneself from those kinds of responsibilities. Um, you know, like I, you know, I need to take a self-care day instead of like doing a good job with my class. That's a mild example. That sounds forgivable, but um, I mean one time that I was sort of like frustrated with the concept of self-care was like during, and yeah, I mean, I need to go back to my, my caveat of like, I have, I'm in the, whatever, what did we decide? Top 10 percentile of cushiness. Top 10%. Um, yep. <laughs> but, uh, but during the uh, pandemic, I had a, a couple of friends who were in graduate school during that time. Um, and I just heard a lot of stories of teachers just like not doing their jobs at all. Um, and at the same time, I heard like a lot of um, there just seemed to be a lot of like discussion about how um, overwhelming COVID is and how we need to all basically like give ourselves a break and take a step back. And I was like, I don't know, like professors should still do their jobs was like the reaction that I had. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, yeah, there's some pathological version that, that like excuses, um, us from, from fulfilling our like obligations to other people, I think. Controversial take that professors should yeah. do their job. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we're going to get roasted on Twitter for that. Uh, <laughs> how are you doing beer wise? Um, I'm almost ready for my second beer. 
I am too. So why don't we grab a refill? And then when we come back, we can talk about how much we work. Set my body free. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us or DM us there, and we'll get it. If you'd rather email us, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, that goes to all three of us. Our website, fourbeers.com. Uh, we have our most recent episode there, as well as our full back catalog. Um, and you can drop us a line there as well if you like. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, it helps other people find the show, and we enjoy it. Uh, Alexa, have I left anything out? I think that's it. Sweet. All right. Um, what are we doing for drinks? Okay, so my second beer is from Evil Twin Brewing, um, and it's called Molotov Cocktail. Um, it's an Imperial India Pale Ale with mango and orange added. I did not check the level of alcohol in this when I bought it, and it is a whopping 12%. Are you fucking kidding? Which That's is like, like maybe the highest alcohol content I've seen in a beer. So I'm going to be very slowly sipping this. Oh, amazing. Okay. Uh, I, I went the exact opposite route. Uh, so uh, the, this brewery is called L'Espace Public. And uh, this is uh, raspberry sour. It is a light beer, mere 3% alcohol. So we are going in dramatically different directions here. Yeah, right. So I should have like four times more allowance for saying stupid things than you in this yes, section. Yes, absolutely. You, you've you like written your ticket to say dumb shit for the next 30, 45 <laughs> minutes. So I feel like you ought to cash it in. I'm actually really curious how this 12% monster tastes. So uh, let's crack them open. Mm-hmm. Mm, I love mine. It's very, you can't really taste the alcohol. Surprise, surprise. And it's very nice and um, tart. How is how is yours? <laughs> I can taste the alcohol in mine. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Is it just like overwhelming? I don't think I've ever had a 12% beer. I don't think I have either. Um, it tastes, yeah, it tastes like an Imperial IPA, like uh, to the max, basically. Um, so like, yeah, all of the booziness of an Imperial IPA, exaggerated. Nice, nice. Well, um I'm impressed with you. We know who this, the real drinker in the... Well, I mean, we knew that before, honestly, <laughs> but, but we've now had it confirmed. 
So you're you're really you're you're very ably stepping into Mickey's shoes, I will say. I feel like on this episode you've implied that uh we knew ahead of time that I drink more than you and also that that my job is is slightly cushier than yours because it was it was subtle but you you were sort of like you're 10% um I probably am 10% too. There was like some suggestion that perhaps perhaps my my life is easier than yours. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful segue. Um perhaps we actually ought to compare workloads. So so Alexa, <laughs> scale of 1 to 10, how hard would you say that you work? Oh, what an interesting way to evaluate this. Um on a scale of 1 to 10, are you giving me any anchors or should I yes. do it without anchors? Yes, first? anchors anchors are like a one would be like, you know, you're just like born into wealth and you just lie on a beach all day. And a 10 would be uh, you know, coal miner, let's say. Okay. Uh 6. Yeah. Okay, I would I would have given myself a 5 or a 6 probably. So where we're going with this, I guess, is part of this like self-care dialogue can't help but be, well, how hard do we work, right? There's a kind of a notion of deservingness that's tied up in this somehow. It seems sort of ridiculous to talk about self-care when your job is really easy. And it seems like if you're somebody who has like a very difficult or demanding job, then yeah, then of course you should uh, take a lot of time to recharge and recover, and that's completely understandable. So I think part of it has to be that there's this sort of value judgment of, well, do you work hard enough to deserve it? In other words, nobody's going to question the ER doctor's demand for self-care. But part of what I think like makes academics so insistent that self-care really matters <laughs> is this lurking feeling that people feel like you don't deserve it, right? right. Um, and to that end, uh, we have this wonderful um, 2013 article that uh, Alexa knew about. Uh, I had actually never read this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pull this up here. Uh, so this is old, I'll say. Uh, this is from 2013. This is in Forbes on Forbes.com, uh, the least stressful jobs of 2013, and least stressful job number one is university professor, <laughs> um, unless they teach summer school. This is, I'm now quoting from the article, they are off between May and September, and they enjoy long breaks during the school year, including a month over Christmas and New Year's, and another chunk of time in the spring. Even when school is in session, they don't spend too much many hours in the classroom. For a tenure-track professor, there is some pressure to publish books and articles but deadlines are few <laughs> and it just uh goes goes on in that vein um and i think yeah like lots of folks like us read stuff like that and they're like well fuck you i work way harder than that and you're way underselling how difficult and demanding a job this is at the same time like yeah i mean we should talk about this but like on the scale of like um professional jobs i i don't know that we work like out of the norm hard and i i think if anything we work probably like a little less hard than many people in other like reasonably well compensated higher prestige professions that require advanced degrees but but i'm curious what what your take on that is there okay so so first of all i wanted to say that in response to um that 2013 article so my reaction to that article has changed quite a bit over time, um, which could be it could be that um, my job has gotten easier 
Or it could be that I've become more like self-aware or more self-critical or both. Um, but when I read that in 2013, I was like, fuck you. <laughs> I was like, this is not a non-stressful job. And I didn't have tenure in. In 2013, I was just, I guess, like in my like first or second year as an assistant professor. Um, and I think that I felt uh, pretty stressed sometimes. Um, and I did, I felt the the pressure to publish them and I was worried that I wasn't publishing enough or getting enough grants. Um, and that was something that I thought about a lot. Um, and then, yeah, so now, I mean, it could be like getting tenure and being released from those kinds of pressures and, but it could also be, I mean, sort of like, um, like, a broader perspective on the sort of range of of um stressful jobs like now i'm much more sympathetic to the idea that you know being a um an academic can be a pretty uh a pretty cushy gig i guess um in the scheme of things um but yeah like i say i, I suspect that both of those things are interacting and then you asked you asked a question about sort of like hard work and I mean, I think that can be evaluated in a number of ways, right? So you can evaluate how hard of a worker you are um, by how many hours you're putting in. Um, but I think there are other things that are relevant too. So f for instance, like uh, one one thing that I think makes my job, especially in its current form, pretty easy is that I spend a lot of time doing things that I enjoy and I have a lot of say in how I spend my time. So like, even if I, you know, work for you know, 10 or 11 hours a day, which would be like, I, I probably don't usually work that much in a day, but it's not, it's not unheard of. Um, I don't feel like totally drained. Um, I don't feel like I have to like come home and be like, I like, don't talk to me. <laughs> I need to like chill and like, um, yeah, I don't feel exhausted by my work really ever. So, so break it down. Like, how are you actually spending your time like day to day? Like, what does a typical day look like? How many hours are you devoting to what? How much variability is there? So, yeah, to be fair, I'll give us a summer day right now. Um, and then I'll also give like a school year day. Um, a summer day when I'm not teaching, I, I probably would do and, and like, let's say I'm not on vacation, like where I'm traveling and really like trying to do little work, um, that like, I'm probably doing like, um, yeah, I don't know, like an average of like four or five hours of work a day. So, um, I might do some work editing for, um, I, I do editing for a couple of journals. Um, there's often like, uh, theses and dissertation meetings and things like that that happen in the summer. Um, my, I meet with my grad students during the summer. Um, we usually have projects that are ongoing. So I'll read manuscripts of theirs and give feedback. Um, so I usually do like a bit of those things, um, just like keeping up with email and things like that. Obviously, that's more if I'm teaching. In the school year, I mean, I think that the like a regular day for me has changed a lot over time and changes from semester to semester. Um, but I, I do sort of treat my, I try to preserve evenings and weekends a fair bit. I usually get up at like between six and seven and with COVID because I haven't had to go to the office, I'll start working 
pretty close to seven. I like working in the mornings. Um, I, I would take a break to go for a run at some point. I spend time like uh, during the school year, I spend um, like some time prepping for teaching. That varies a lot depending on whether a class is a new prep or not. If it's not, I spend quite quite little time teaching except for like in the classroom. Um, yeah, meeting with grad students, giving feedback on work, that doing editing. There's just like a lot of stuff that like seems to happen when a department is sort of in full, like uh, full functioning mode during the school year where there's like faculty meetings and committee meetings and um, uh, I, yeah, I don't know, searches and stuff like that. Um, we have advising where we meet with undergraduate students. Um, yes, time spending, spent talking to undergrads. Uh, and then there's the sort of like the stuff like, um, like giving talks and going to conferences and things like that. Um, I don't usually work past five. Um, and I don't usually, I, I usually do like a little bit of work on the weekends. I'd say that's typical. What about you, Ewell? Uh, so when I'm teaching, it looks similar to that. Uh, I, I stack my teaching typically. So I do three courses all in the fall. Um, so those usually, like the days that I teach, like most or all of the day is devoted to teaching and stuff around it. So like uh, prepping the lecture, doing the lecture itself, meeting with students and stuff. So I'm, I'm there basically all day and I'll probably get in uh, around 10 in the morning and probably stay later till like seven or something like that just to miss traffic. And I'll be there solidly working basically all day on those three days. And then the other two days during the teaching semesters are like just catching up, keeping up on research, not being a terrible collaborator, other admin stuff. And then usually it ends up spilling over into at least part of one weekend day as well to like just catch up on stuff that I haven't been able to to keep on top of just because of like teaching eating up so much time. And then during the non-teaching, which is the other nine months, right? So that's like the majority of the year. Mm. When I'm not traveling, I usually work like 9.30 to 5-ish with like a lunch break and all of that stuff. And like, I'll take a break to, I don't know, do some laundry, put the dishes away, listen to a podcast, whatever. So it's not like I'm like sitting there focused work for all of those like seven and a half hours. But I am like most of the time sitting there working. And there I like try to turn off the email and like work on papers and stuff like that. Um, which I'm actually curious whether you've transitioned to the point where like your students are the ones like running the stats and making the tables and stuff like that, or whether you're still doing a lot of that stuff, because I find that fun, but which is kind of perverse, but I enjoy it, but, but also very time consuming. So like, I still do quite a bit of that myself. So like today, for example, I spent most of my work time, like, coding this data script to like do these analyses and then like writing down what the outputs were right and that's like obviously time consuming um like you can just do that all day like i i did that like in a pretty focused way like most of the day and i like got it done like the script is finished but like it's just slow right if you're like going to do a good job of it and like be careful about it it just takes time so yeah do you do you still do that sort of thing pretty rarely for Basically for the reason that my students have like become more advanced than I am. 
Um, so there's like every once in a while I'll do um, some kind of like data analysis, like write up kind of stuff. Um, but my students definitely do more of that than I do. The The place where I get like pretty into the nitty gritty working with my students on papers is writing. Um, so I give pretty like intensive feedback as my students would, would um, I think corroborate. Um, and also we sometimes write together. So we'll like sit down and like literally like work on a paragraph together. Um, so I, I like doing that and I do, I do that in a pretty fine grained way with my students. Um, but they're doing most of the stats and the, um, writing up results and things like that. Yeah. You know, that's it. That's interesting. That's maybe something that I need to practice letting go of because like, I'm such a control freak with that stuff. Like I do still want to, even for the students who are like very good, um, like recheck all of their code and like rerun their analyses and like, I don't know, like, is that actually adding value or am I just being a control freak? I mean, my guess is that it adds a lot of value. Um, I think you, I think you should be patting yourself on the back instead of questioning yourself. Maybe that's what you're doing. Maybe this is all just a big humble brag. Like, oh, am I doing something wrong? Double checking my students' work. This is a very veiled boast. Well, sometimes <laughs> the problem is that I make mistakes, right? So, like, I might introduce errors. It's not. It's not necessarily that I'm always improving the situation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you have a sense, you all, of how hard your graduate students work? No. I mean, I know, I know that they uh, produce, um, but I don't know how much other stuff is going on. Um, and I know that some of them will ostentatiously claim to be lazy, but I don't think it's actually true. I certainly don't like watch them to the point where I would have an idea of how they're spending every hour of the day. Um, I assume that you force yours to fill in, you know, detailed timesheets, sort of like punch the clock whenever they're... Yeah, did you know that you can buy, um, you know, punch clocks just on the internet? And <laughs> yeah. you can just put those outside in your lab. That combined with some, like, very cheap security cameras, and you really have an idea of what they're up to at all times. <laughs> yeah, you must at least follow their Google calendars, Yoel. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes I hang out outside their apartment, peer in their windows, <laughs> make sure they're working. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, in all honesty, like that is something that I find very challenging about being an advisor um, is that I rarely have a good sense of how um, how my students are spending their time. So when, you know, when somebody doesn't follow through on a deadline or something like that, I find it hard to know whether that is reasonable or whether it's like a situation where like we need to have a conversation about priorities or like figure out you know, um, talk about motivation or something like that. Um, because I, I really have quite little insight into how my students spend their time other than knowing that, that some of them are, you know, like very dependable and productive and things like that. Yeah. You know, so maybe this is like the wrong approach to mentorship, but I've always felt this idea of like, well, they're junior researchers and it's their career. And, they should want to work on things because they want to work on them. Um, and so I sort of resent the idea that I'm like their babysitter. I have to run around after them. I have to be like, are you doing this? Are you doing that? How much are you working? Because they feel like that's kind of their job. But 
that said, I feel like that can that attitude can go too far and that some people really benefit from more structure and deadlines and having like a level of accountability where they know somebody is going to be um, unhappy or disappointed if they don't get that draft in on time. Yeah, I think that's what I struggle with, too, is like um, I very much have the mentality that that students are in grad school for to meet their own goals. And I'm sort of like here as like uh, somebody who um, is working with them to try to help them meet those goals. Um, so, yeah, I assume that they're intrinsically motivated and I don't really see it as my role to sort of like stoke that motivation or um, or force productivity in some way or something like that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think in some ways it's important to sort of like monitor, like, oh, do you see like the, the work that you're doing as like a, a slog or do you find like that it's easy to spend time doing it? And, and sometimes I think that understanding how somebody spends their time gives you sort of a clue to that. Right. So, um, I mean, I have the same, the same sort of like questions about undergraduates. Um, so, you know, I sometimes find it hard to tell when I get sort of like a, a mediocre essay from an undergraduate student, like, did this person like throw this together um, and that's why it's mediocre or did they like work their butt off? Um, but they struggle with this kind of work. Um, and that's why it's mediocre. And so, like, there are different solutions to those two different problems, right? And it's hard to it's hard to know which one is which. Yeah, to to come back to the self care thing a little bit. Do you? I mean, with your lab or the grad students that you work with, do you talk about this with them? Do you encourage them to slow down and take more personal time, or? Or maybe the opposite, right? Maybe you discourage that you're like, you're taking a little too much care of yourself. You wanna you wanna tilt it a little bit more towards the getting papers published. Yeah, I think you guys are gonna need to let yourselves go. And <laughs> no time for exercise. Papers. No time for family. <laughs> time for work. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that what I communicate to my students is like um, I'm very accommodating of, uh, self-care kinds of needs. Like, um, like if you're struggling with mental health or you're struggling with personal stuff or you like went through a breakup, um, I'm pretty, uh, I think I communicate like a lot of willingness to accommodate those things and understanding about those things. Um, but I am sort of, fussy about like how that's communicated to me um so if it gets like communicated to me like with like ahead of time like hey i think i'm like gonna have a hard time you know meeting this deadline that we set in advance or like i think this next week is gonna be rough for me i'm like quite happy to accommodate that and if it happens after the fact like oh you know the reason i missed that deadline last week was because you know I've been having a hard time. I'm like pretty, um, I'm like kind of a dick about that, but I think I should be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's reasonable. Um, so do you feel that the students feel overburdened? 
Like, do you think that they feel like they have too much to do and too little time to do it in? Sometimes, but not always. Um, the, the people who I have the most insight into are the students who work with me. Um, I've certainly seen all of my students go through periods where they seem pretty overwhelmed. Um, but I don't think that any of them would say, like, that they were always overwhelmed or that, like, um, that uh, they, like, always had a hard time keeping up or whatever. What's your what's your sense of that? I mean, I, I think it's mixed. Um, I think where they can struggle is more with um, staying motivated. Like, I, I think, like, uh, deadlines and motivation and, like, the guilt spiral that you can get into where it's like, I'm not working and I feel terrible for not working and that makes me not want to work is is more of an issue than literally there's not enough hours in the day to get the work done. Like, I, I just don't think that's the case for most of them. Um, and I, I mean, I definitely didn't feel that way as a grad student mm-hmm. at all. Uh, I felt that if there were problems, which, the, you know, I mean, I was sometimes slower than I wanted to be, it was because I was having trouble motivating. Like, I wasn't using the time that I had. And, like, that came from this, like, very different style of working where it's, like, kind of on you. You know, you're the one who has to make yourself work. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think there there might be times when my students would say, like, they, they really are running out of hours. I think that's more often the case with um, teaching uh, because teaching just has many more like more frequent deadlines right like you have to have your lecture ready you have to have grades in by a certain time things like that um and i think when you first start teaching it's just like extremely time consuming um but yeah other than that i think that it's yeah it's it's usually more of like an issue of are you are you able to like motivate yourself to do the work and that's another reason why it's sort of um like something that's hard to determine if I don't know when I don't know how students are spending their time is like, you know, is this person using all of their time and this is what they're like, this is the product of them using all of their time or are they not using all of their time, which might raise questions about like, um, yeah, are they, are they enjoying this? You know, are they feeling like, motivated to do this or are they struggling to find that motivation and then like the underlying question of sort of uh is that like a work habits thing or is that a you know maybe this is like not not the field you want to be in kind of thing yeah i mean i i feel like the ideal case is that you kind of have to force yourself not to work because work is really what you want to be doing and i certainly like i mean i'm not always that way but if I successfully get excited about something, then I really do have to make myself stop. And I'm a little mad that I have to do anything other than like work on this thing. What was the last thing you felt that way about? Oh, it was today when I was like, I was very close to like getting this code to like re- like produce all of the analyses that I needed for the paper. But like it wasn't quite there. And I hadn't, there's like one thing that I still had to do and I like didn't have time to do it. I was like, God damn it. I have to fucking record this podcast. And it's ruining my, that's not true. That's, <laughs> I, I, I make a rule to like stop at like 
five or so and like actually have a life. But I feel like sometimes it's like that it feels like an act of self-control actually, because like I would just like keep, you know, I would eat chips and keep, keep going and that would be bad. Here's where I like resonate with the self-care idea. There is something a little bit pathological about that. Like I don't at the end of the day then like feel good about myself. Right. I feel kind of like tired and overstretched and like just gross. And so I feel like it's better to stop and like be like, I'm going to eat a real dinner. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go out of doors, you know, like all of those things that make you feel like a human. Do you need um, transition time between your work and when you can like operate in the world as a normal human being? Like if you are to like go from writing this code to talking to a human being, um, what amount of time do you need before you're like acting normally? Great question. Yes, definitely. Uh, 30 minutes, preferably. Um, yeah, like the, the the first 15 are really rough. And if I try and have a conversation, it's like my brain is still like doing the task, right? And it's like most of its spare like capacity is involved in that. And so I'll like literally like just forget what people are saying, stare into space. It's very rude and frustrating, actually. Like, no, it's not not a good way to be. Mm-hmm. I'm actually the opposite. So, and I think this means that I, I rarely experience the kinds of flow states that you're describing. So like, I, I don't usually need much transition time. And if somebody like interrupts me in my work, it's usually like not a big deal. I'm like, sort of like always like at this sort of surface of, uh, of being able to like attend to other people. Um, but yeah, I think that it means that I, I do have those that experience of like being really, really involved in in work, but it's kind of rare for me. Man, I'm sort of envious of you though, because like, you know, the flip side of for me is that uh, I have a long burn-in period. So like the first like thirty to sixty minutes, I'm not particularly productive, and if I get distracted like during focused work, like if somebody's like, "Hey, what do you want to have for dinner?" I'm like, it just like really trips me up. I have real trouble getting back into it, you know? Yeah. I feel like there are big individual differences in this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I feel like as always, you're the regular well-balanced person and I have some mental problems. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it's, it sounds like that's the, that kind of like intensity is I think what people associate with being really like passionate about. I, I'm sort of like envious of you because it sounds like you, um, oh no, now we've dissolved and devolved into like telling each other we're the more passionate person. This is the exact kind of like non-disagreement conversation that we were worried about. Like, yeah, mutual stroking for 60 (laughs) minutes. Nobody wants to hear this. (laughs) Say something critical. Yeah. It sounds like you're a weirdo. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, you're you're flighty and lazy. So yeah, yeah fuck you. Oh. All right. Well, I feel like I feel like we've done some self-care. <laughs> um, I don't know whether we've done the topic justice. I, I honestly have no idea. It's hard to know where this topic begins and where it ends. Yeah. That's <laughs> I true. think that's the overall message. It went to some weird places, but But I overall, I feel like I feel good about it. I agree.